So, Bob, patron Maya wrote in and said that she wanted us to talk about couples therapy. And since you're a couples therapist, I thought it'd be great to have you on the podcast and we could just kind of go back and forth about what couples therapy is and our experiences with it. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also a professor of a marriage and family therapy program. Who are you, Bob? I'm Bob. I'm a good friend of yours from graduate school from way back when, a therapist in practice in Seattle who's only gotten interested in couples therapy in the last 12 years. Yeah, uh, only in the last 12 years. It's funny, the older you get, <laughs> and you're just like, only in the last. Uh, I, I The other day in class, I said something like, you know, in my early career, for the first 15 years of my career, <laughs> da, da, da. And I thought, to them, that's like a long-term career. Yeah. But to me, that's early career. Right. You know, but anyway. So, patron Maya, uh, dear doctor, dear doctor, Professor Honda. That's that's my favorite moniker. I started training as a psychodynamic counselor. It would be great mm-hmm. if you could dedicate an episode to couples counseling, the, the most common difficulties faced, and how you as a counselor address these, etc., so um, let's kind of break this up into different sections. The first, the first section I, I want to talk about is that there's so much to say about couple. Well, actually, the very first thing I want to say is that I come from a time when couples therapy was called couple therapy. It's the same as when you call family therapy. You don't call it families therapy. <laughs> you, you call it you call it family therapy individual therapy. You don't call it individuals therapy. So it should be couple therapy. But for whatever reason, from the start, couple therapy doesn't like gel with your brain. There's something weird about couple therapy. You know, there's, uh, do you know why that word just doesn't uh, appeal? I always thought it was weird. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. Yeah. Couple therapy. I think it's because it sounds like you're saying a couple therapy. Like normally, a couple means plural. Yeah. So you're saying a couple of therapies or something. It doesn't. It doesn't roll off the tongue. But somehow, a couples. So, for instance, I my program is called a couple and family therapy. The couple and family therapy program. It's not called the couples and family therapy program. Right. Well, that sounds normal to me, though. That way, the couple and family therapy. Right. Right. But somehow, when you take the and family, it goes to, you know. But in the field, they don't call it couples therapy. You know, it's it's call it's we're as a professional myself, I'm starting to hear other professionals starting to refer themselves as couples therapists. But that's that's only like in been the last few years. In the in the literature, it's not called couples counseling. It's called couple counseling or couple therapy. And so. Just know all that kind of noise right there. <laughs> I'll probably name this episode "Couples Therapy," <laughs> uh, but uh, but so, so there's that. The next thing I'll say as a caveat before moving forward is that there's so much to say about couples therapy. I could do thousands of episodes and not run out of topics. Each psychotherapy theory is involved in in couples therapy. You have systems theory, you got Gottman, you got EFT, Sue Johnson, cognitive couple therapy, behavioral couple therapy, solution focus couples therapy, psychodynamic couples therapy, gestalt couples therapy, IFS, humanistic, Rogers, existential, neurobiology, 
psychiatric couple therapy, medical minded, you know, it's, it's every, you know, there's, there's everything. So to encapsulate couples therapy into one episode is impossible. So what we're, we're going to focus on a few different topics. One is, is common, common presenting problems, you know, things that people come to therapy with, because I think for some people, they might be interested in that. The second thing we can talk about is countertransference, what it's like as a therapist to sit with a couple and what the common commonalities there. The the third thing is to talk about what a what a common couples therapy session looks like. Uh, then talking about common stages as as couples therapy progresses, and then uh, the success rate, so to speak. Okay, so uh, first off, common presenting problems. Bob, what do you see in terms of common presenting problems that couples come to you for? Well, it's funny. What couples say is not what I think. They often say, we don't communicate. We have trouble communicating. Right. And I, I never encapsulate anybody's problem in terms of a communication problem. Have we talked about this before? No. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it's true for families too. The single most common, if not ubiquitous and universal thing that people will say is that they are struggling with communication. But the way you and I think about communication, we think, well, you're always communicating. You're not having a problem with communicating. You're having a problem with something that results in you communicating in a way that hurts other people or or like creates conflict or something. So, but that's the way lay people talk about it. They, they're, they, they don't know how to conceptualize their problems essentially. And so they're, they're a very, especially in that first session, they're trying to be polite. So, so they'll try, you know, they don't want to say my husband's an asshole. That's why we're here. You know, what they want to say is something that is less blamey and we're having trouble communicating is, is a perfect cultural statement, but, but, but to us, when we hear that, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, to me, it doesn't mean anything. I'm always like, you know, uh, so what are you here for? Well, we're having trouble communicating. And I'm always like, it, it always, it's like, yeah, I knew you're going to say that, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but honestly, it, it, it tells me probably it's, it's once, you know, I'll say, I'll follow it up with something like, so are you guys fighting a lot? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. We're, we're having big time fights. Oh, okay. So you're, you're having trouble with, with conflict. So anyway, um, Right. So what are the what are the so I would say the number one thing that people come to couples therapy is conflict, right? Yeah. It's very common. Uh number one issue by far. People will come in saying that they're having huge fights at least once per week uh, with long-standing negativity that follows it and uh, you know just a lot of difficulty with conflict. Fights about money or about parenting or about sex or about um, about fighting about fighting, but really, and we'll get more into this later. The almost always, if not always, I find that with couples, they're not fighting about what they're fighting about. They're fighting about uh, a, a baseline. How do I word this? Um, a, a baseline attachment need, essentially. They are feeling hurt. They want to feel secure. And they are trying to get the other person to understand their attachment needs. And they're doing it in a way that is destructive, that 
ends up creating more conflict and more reason to not feel secure in the attachments. Do you know what I'm saying? Am I ex- explaining that? Well? I do. I think it's important to note that each person is probably doing something that creates the conflict or um, they cross trigger one another. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So people will come in and say, we, um, the other night we were meeting for dinner and she was late and I was getting in a bad mood. She arrived late. I was a little uh, miffed and a little, I had a little bit of an attitude. She thought that I wasn't being understanding and um, started giving me attitude. And then we, by the, you know, an hour or two went by, we just said, let's just scrap the night and go home because everything is, you know, negative and I don't know how to get out of this conflict and how did we even get here and what's, how come you, you never lighten up or how come you never understand that you need to be on time or just all those kinds of things. Now I'm, I'm phrasing it in a sort of nice way, but the way people typically fight are, you know, it's, it's, um, not a lot of taking responsibility for their own issues. So, so they'll, so they'll say like, well, so I was waiting there for her. And when she arrived, she started giving me this attitude. And then you turn to her and she's like, well, I wasn't giving you attitude. You were giving me attitude. And he's like, I'm not, I wasn't giving you attitude. And she's like, uh, you were definitely giving me attitude. And, you know, and they go, so they're not aware or ready to admit or something that their own uh, feelings were hurt and that they were exhibiting some kind of vibe because of various different reasons that we'll get into in a second. But um, so, so that's the number one reason is just conflict. What's great about the way you say it is conflict is about process as opposed to us individual counselors often think about things in terms of what's going on intrapsychically, whereas couples therapy is not about what's going on intrapsychically, or at least not exclusively. It's about what's this process between you and me that's causing us to be in conflict. Right. But you just define it in a process-oriented way, which I think is really good for individual counselors to hear. Yeah. Even when I work with individuals, yeah. and I think we've talked about this yeah. before, as now as a couple, because you, so I was trained as a couple and family therapist, and right from the start yeah. was working with groups of people that were related to each other in my office, as well as seeing individuals. Whereas you started out as a counselor counselor yeah. and, and worked pretty much with individuals and yeah. with groups of people who aren't related um, in group therapy. Yeah, right. But uh, when you started venturing into couples, why did you decide you wanted to do couples therapy? I just sort of fell into it backwards. I was working at this clinic and I got referred this couple and it was kind of interesting. They had a vast age difference between them and they needed a counselor and I had room on my caseload. And so they sent them to me and I started reading a little bit about Gottman and um, just somehow took an interest in it and then started getting some training. Yeah. And it you liked it. You felt good about the work. I did. What I liked is um, the potential for intimacy. You don't see that in individual therapy, at least not in that way. Right. Right in front of our eyes. Right. We can witness people improving their relationships, having intimacy, uh, apologizing, uh, and expressing love right there. Right. Instead of with an individual saying, go out there and express love, you know. Um, obviously, there's a relationship between client and therapist, but it's not as, um, uh, I don't know, 
it's different, obviously. It is. <laughs> um, so, uh, right. Um, so what was I getting at? Yeah, right. So as an individual therapist, now you know, yeah. when you work with your individuals, it's changed. How so? I think people, I think of people relationally. And one of the main benefits of becoming, of learning couples therapy is that when I hear about conflict, I don't take my client's side. Yeah. Whereas I used to and not know that I was doing a major disservice. Right. Yeah. Why a disservice? Because they're, because people are relational. And it's very easy when you're sitting with one person in a room, if you don't know what you're doing, to think, yeah, your partner is a jerk. Right. Gee, you got to do something about that. Let's work on a skill. Like, you should be more assertive and blah, 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 blah and miss the boat entirely. Right. Exactly. This is one of my major bones to pick with our industry. Yeah. Is how ignorant therapists can be. <laughs> and, and And it's like... You know, the notion that your client might be a little distorted in their relationship uh, storytelling <laughs> isn't, shouldn't be a shocker to people. Right. The most differentiated, most mature person in the face of conflict and attachment and security will invent a very strange story that isn't necessarily shared by everybody involved. <laughs> and so, so the notion that your client uh, is giving you a biased, perspective on a situation shouldn't be a shocker. And so the reason why I have this bone to pick is because I have been, um, I, I've seen a lot of people both professionally and personally be harmed yeah. by individual therapists that don't understand how conflict arises between people and how there's a, there's two sides to every story. Yeah. It's it's a very Dr. Phil or oh. culturally uh, common knee-jerk reaction. When, when someone comes to you and says, my husband is a jerk. He doesn't listen to me. He, he, does, he, he doesn't do any chores. He is, uh, he's always asking for sex. He is, I think he might even be cheating on me or something. And it's very easy to hear that and to think he's an asshole and I don't like him. Yeah. And I, I kind of hope that she divorces him. Right. And, and to feel actually certain. Right. To feel, is... to feel very certain. <laughs> oh, shit. And, and when you actually talk to this guy, you're like, oh, there's this whole other side of the story. Yeah. He is a human being and he is insecure and and is okay with expressing that and he has complaints about his wife sure and it's not the kind of thing you would invent in your head in that person like you know he doesn't sit down and say she doesn't have any sex with me she must give me sex da, da, you know, like that's not what he says he sits he sits down and he's just like you know i i don't know i, I feel like our marriage is kind of falling apart if you know some when i try to reach out to her and just try to have a conversation i feel like she's always in a bad mood or whatever you hear but you hear a very sympathetic other side of the story right and when we fall into these cultural traps of of being seduced by someone's distortion we do a disservice by encouraging I mean, there's nothing wrong with listening to an individual sure. and validating their feelings. Absolutely. You don't want to sit there and go like, I'm highly skeptical of your <laughs> story. But at the very least, if you're really going to help someone, you, you, you need to have a bird's eye view of the situation and know that there are two sides to every story and know that if you 
proceed as such, you'll probably do better. For instance, again, individual therapy, woman comes in, complains about husband, doesn't do chores, he's an asshole, we have fights all the time, he doesn't listen to me, and all he wants is sex. Well, the the bad thing would be to just go along with that story and say, like, well, you should divorce him. Now, maybe she should divorce him, but that's not that's not for a therapist to decide. A better approach is like, well, over time, once you validate her feelings and you build enough rapport, you start asking her, well, what would he be saying if he were here? I'll, I'll ask that question. If he were here, what, what would he be telling me? You know, and, and she'd be saying, well, I don't know. And I'd be like, well, you know, think about it. You know, what, what's, what's, what's going on in his head? Why does he do these things? What's, what's it like for him? And you'll get, you know, if people are differentiated enough, they can actually tell you. They'll say, well, he'd probably say that I'm grumpy all the time and that I give him the sense that I don't like him and that he is always trying to uh, get on my good graces and never never succeeding or something. That maybe that's what he'd say. I don't know, you know. And right. so it's like, oh, okay. So now we're getting at the dynamic. Now, as a attachment oriented person, I would see that and say, okay, well, both of you are wanting your attachment needs and both of you are, are trying to get your attachment needs and you're sending signals that are being misunderstood by the other person regarding, Hey, I need my attachment needs met. And so I, you know, so I would proceed from that angle of like, okay, what, so when he comes home and he starts talking about sex. What do you think is really going on in his in his heart? Is it that he is a sex crazed maniac, or is it that he, when you guys are naked and rolling around together, he feels close to you? And since he's a male in a fucked up society that only allows men to express attachment needs through sex and not through any other means, then maybe that's his way of saying he misses you and he loves you and he does. And maybe you could actually help him with other kinds of, of broadening that out. You could even say, what do you say we not have sex and we just sort of lay in bed together or we just, you know, hang out or something instead. My guess is, is he would be totally happy with that because he probably deep down, that's what he's really asking for. Anyway, people have sexual needs too. So it's not like that should be ignored, but so that's all individual therapy. If I was to just go and be seduced by her biased, distorted perspective, I would assume he's an asshole and he doesn't have any attachment needs and he's just an abusive, terrible human being. Uh, again, it's a matter of perspective and you can make arguments for either one and there's not a scientific viewpoint, but I find that the relational process viewpoint is way more helpful when helping everyone, including myself in my own life. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the things that's true about people is they rarely see their, the impact of their own behavior in their relationship. So they just see the other guy asking for sex or coming home late and they don't see, well, what is going on on my end that maybe is leading that person to do whatever behavior I don't like or whatever it is that's happening. We just kind of see ourselves as innocent <laughs> victims right. of the other person's, you know, megalomania or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's known psychological phenomena that contribute to this. We're all inherently narcissistic. We are all self-biased. For instance, when 
when we do something great, when we like, like I, I, they they do experiments that I'm going to kind of butcher it, but they'll do an experiment where luck is involved. Like, Oh yeah. Like just rolling dice or something. And when you succeed, you tend to attribute it to yourself. Like I'm a good roller of dice. Whereas when someone else succeeds with rolling dice, you tend to see them as lucky. Like, Oh, they, they're lucky. Right. But so there's this innate sense that we have that we're special and different and better. And, and so when we get into a fight and we feel bad and we don't, and we're not trying to hurt the other person, we tend to see our, our behavior as understandable and reasonable. And we tend to see the other person's behavior as unreasonable and purposeful is another thing. You know, he's purposely yeah. trying to hurt my feelings. Right. Or, um, his he his feelings are hurt by me, but I didn't do it on purpose, and that's because he's stupid and he interprets things bad. I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with couples and in my own personal life. Or or you get the other one, which is like, yeah, of course I did it because who wouldn't do it if they were subject to this kind of abuse or right, blah blah blah. Right. And so all that is normal and and human. Yeah, and it's up to us as couples therapists to help with that perspective and to slow down and understand the whole help the couple understand the, the whole process why do you think we have that bias is that evolutionary i know you hate that stuff i don't hate speculation i just hate the studies that claim they've discovered some innate evolutionary uh, psychological mechanism okay yeah uh, we undoubtedly evolved instincts and traits but trying to tease those out from cultural learning is extremely difficult. Nicely put. But, um, well, I've argued about it so many times, so it's it's been an an evolution of my ability to articulate it. No, I thought you were um, just being lucky in the way you said it. (laughs) But, uh, uh, do, you know, yeah, I I think we probably did evolve a sense of... of self-importance of self-preservation, right? It's probably, you know, I could, it's, this would be nearly impossible to study even at, in a thousand years from now, but the, to propagate our genes, we have to at least have a sense that we are special (laughs) enough to propagate our genes enough to require food and require resources and require attention. We, we have to at least have a sense of ourself and a sense of, that we are special, you know. Now, do apes and dogs and cats and other other animals like the dog that's barking? In fact, I should let her out. She wants to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. So, evolution, blah blah blah. All right. So let's move on because we're only like two points into this whole thing here. So yeah, number one presenting problem is conflict. Number two is infidelity. Yeah. Lots of people are cheating on each other. And a percentage of them are being caught. <laughs> what do you think about pornography as infidelity? It's an interesting question. I, it's it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. It, it's uh, I, I have talked with couples and individuals about this. On on there, there's two things I'll say. One is is that on on one level, it's it's all in the eye of the beholder. So if 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 you have say for instance a wife who considers pornography to be cheating and unacceptable or even masturbation or something then that's that's her right she can define for herself in her own life what kind of behaviors are acceptable to her 
And these are conversations that people might want to have early in a relationship. I don't know. Uh, so there's that. But the other thing is, is we've all been programmed by society in a way of shaming sex. And so now, so with the first thing being true that I would never force someone to change their ideas about sex to the, perhaps the way I would want people to feel. I'm, I'm a generally a liberal person. I want people to feel free to, to do what they do as long as they're not harming other people. And my idea of harm is when it comes to pornography is, is a particular version of that, right? Because people can make an argument that porn always harms people, the industry, or it gets in the way between you and your spouse or something. So, you know, so on one hand, I would never forcibly tell someone that they're wrong or something like that. So, but at the same time, we've all been socialized in our society to generally consider sex to be a bad thing. When uh, Amer Americans, some Americans know this, but when you go to other countries, you realize how puritanical our country is. <laughs> you go to other countries like, oh, wow, you know, in these other countries, they don't, they don't have the same understanding of of what is considered to be lewd or inappropriate or even sexual. And Americans, we now other countries have puritanical ideas. You know, Mexico is, is pretty uh, buttoned up as well. So it's not like Americans are have a, monop a monopoly on that. But the point is, is that uh, we have all been programmed to think that sex is shameful in a lot of ways. And unless it's a very narrow uh, behavior, we consider it to be gross. So when a man is looking at pornography and masturbating, like the, the analogy that I like to give is like, if you went and got a massage from a massage therapist, a legit, you know, massage therapist, and you, uh, during the mid middle, middle of the day at work, and you got back from the massage, and someone asked you, where were you? You'd say, oh, I got a massage. And they'd be like, oh, wow, it's really great. Whereas, let's say you went home and looked at porn and masturbated, and then you went back to work. How many of you would say, oh, I went home and looked at porn and masturbated? <laughs> but both are the same in my book. They're both just self-indulgent things that you do to feel good. And, but one is associated with sex and the, the most awful, gross, disgusting, amoral thing you could do. Now, a lot of people would say they don't agree with that. But how many people are going to admit to their coworkers that they went home and masturbated? Yeah, nobody. And I mean, there's very few people that sure. would that would admit to that. Right. Adam Carolla, maybe one of them. <laughs> um, he's famous for talking about his masturbation practices. But, but, but admitting that you went for a walk, or you went fishing, or you went to an art show, or you got a massage, or took a nap, or something. Somehow, all those are fine. They're all self indulgent things, and you know they're not. They're not they, they're not productive. So people to speak. wouldn't even say they went home and had sex with their partner, right? Exactly. What if you say exactly? So everything is off limits when yeah. it comes, you know. But you'd be a little bit more likely just to say, like, well, you know, me and the wife, you know. Yeah. But like most people wouldn't, right? They they would they would not say that. Yeah. Uh, why? You know, you're is, let's let's put it in the cleanest possible scenario. You're married, okay? Yeah. And you've been married for fifteen years. You have a couple kids. Everyone knows you have you have sex, and yet going home 
for lunch and having sex with the with your your spouse who you're married to and coming back into work and yeah it's because sex is shameful sex is shameful we don't like to admit that to ourselves but it's, it's totally shameful now i could go on and on and on about this but the point is is that some people because of this programming when they interface with another maybe they don't like looking at porn and masturbating but when they when they have a partner that does it because of their programming they will view that in a very uh, particular way and sometimes it can help to deprogram that or the way i should phrase it is i'll offer it up to the client and say like you have an option here of seeing it up from a number of different ways. And we can talk about those various ways of thinking about it. And if you want to continue seeing it this way, I will a billion percent support you. But I just want to explore this issue and see what other options are available to you. And if you go with those, I'll also support you. But but don't, um, you know. So it's a tricky line, of course, because there's a message there that I'm saying you're not necessarily right. You know what I mean? But I, but I try to be pretty careful and I've seen success in both directions, meaning that some people will stick to their guns. And after talking about it, they're like, no, I, I'm not comfortable with porn. I, I appreciate where you're coming from, Kirk, that there's other options, but this is how I see the world. And this is how I want to see the world. And, and I will say, great. And I'll, and I'll never come back to it. I'll just be like, okay, we've established, you know, I, yeah. I've, I've thrown it out there. You've, considered it to however much you felt like you wanted to and and this is where we're at which is which is great and then i just move forward and then i'll then turn you will find a way though to talk about it that isn't puritanical that's value-based as opposed to the other person is wrong if right am i wrong about that um no uh if that's how they see it if they if they adhere to a puritanical language system then and we've and i've yeah. throwing it out there then i stick with that pure i mean i'm not gonna uh, that's not how i'm gonna phrase it but if that's how they want to phrase it then that's then that's fine because there's lots of different you know, cultural beliefs in the world right <laughs> some people believe abortion is wrong some people say abortion is fine some people think that polyamory is fine some people think it's not right and i will be i'm i'm what once i throw it out there that they have a choice and they continue to choose that then I'm fine with that. Right. And and then it's up to the partner. So so in that scenario we have a couple the wife is upset about the porn and and I've thrown it out there and she's like no I want to stick to this to this point of view which which honestly is is a frequent uh result. Yeah. Um and then the husband is now faced with okay now what are you going to do, <laughs> right? Cuz your your wife is is continuing that point of view she's- meaning She's saying this is my limit. Yeah, you can't look at porn. You cannot look at porn. That is that's my limit. And and that I consider that to be infidelity when you look at porn. And then we just proceed as normal. I I I've had couples that I've worked with on that uh for years. Yeah. Where every couple months they come in and the husband was caught doing it again and the husband uh and and it takes a while for the husband to adjust to it too, because he's just like, well, other people don't see it this way, and da da da, and, and then eventually he has to accept. Look, this is how his wife is going to see it, and what's he going to do about it? He can either try to convince her otherwise, but if that doesn't work, then he has to 
uh, either accommodate or face the consequences, you know, and, and so uh, a lot of the couples that I work with, the husband will accommodate, he'll try to figure it out, which politically, I have to say, I have a little bit of a problem with, but, but at the same time, it's not up to me to define what people's values are, because essentially what ends up happening sometimes is these guys will end up having to go to um, Sex Addicts Anonymous oh because they look at porn and masturbate once every few months. And they go to these because because that's how it's seen is you're addicted to porn, right? And so they go to these Sex Addicts Anonymous meetings and these other men in the room are like, you're not a sex addict. <laughs> you're nothing close to a sex addict. In fact, you're on the other side of the spectrum. You're like extremely, uh, like, I don't know, you don't have any compulsion. You're expressing a normal human sort of compulsion to, for sexual expression or something. Right. And, and so, uh, so there, but there are some groups that will accommodate for people like this. And there's actually porn addiction places too, that will be more amenable to someone in this category. But anyway, what do you think about all this? I think it gets really hard to talk about. I think my own troubles with sex and my own shame about it uh, creates a barrier for me to be able to be articulate and flexible. And um, though my thinking tends along the lines of yours, it's like, you know, whatever people decide is okay is okay with me, as long as they're not hurting each other. Um, I have my own, you know, training, as it were, and uh, that makes me rigid. I don't want to be rigid, but I just... Rigid am. training? Sorry? Your training makes you rigid? How? Not my professional training, my um, Catholic background. Oh. <laughs> and the sequelae of that. Anyways, um, I don't want to get on a tangent. The, the, I guess the thing I mean to say is what I would strive for when I'm working with a couple is to not couch it in terms of who's right and who's wrong, but to find a way to speak about it where where one isn't less than because he likes to jerk off and look at porn. It's just her limit. It doesn't mean he's bad or wrong. It's just her limit. I see. Yeah. Right. Right. And and that is a. It, this is all a very weird area because just that, as things that I've been saying, is a value system that you have. Right? Yeah. And and one partner might feel as though their values might be as such that looking at porn makes you a bad person, and and masturbating makes you a bad person, makes you a sinner, or makes you. And so, would you address that emotionally? Like, what does it mean to me to think about my partner as sinning? What does that say? What am I? What's the message I'm? It's what am not I telling how, myself? It's not how you and I see the world. It isn't. I'm not saying that it is. What I'm saying is, would you work with it in that? It's sort of like, well, what is it like for you to be with somebody who's quote unquote sinning? Yeah, cer certainly exploration. Yeah, while at the same time. Because I've I've worked with a lot of couples in situations, not a lot, but some in situations that are extremely religious, right? And I have come to a place now where I have accepted that there are people with very different points of view, and of they are entitled to that. And and although it doesn't negate my couples therapy objectives and approach, it does mean that. There are shaming systems that are that people are entitled to have, you know, and um, you know, like uh, Jehovah Witnesses, for instance, can be extremely um, 
rigid or shall we say and uh, in, in, in many ways not of the mainstream American cultural understanding of sex and of marriage and of duty and all this kind of stuff. And when I have couples that are, uh, I've had couples who are like fully in the Jehovah witness community, you know, they're might even be ministers or something. Yeah. And, and it, it gets very strange because on, uh, if I was just to, to not consider their Jehovah witness culture, I would be telling them to do all sorts of things that would be completely against their culture, against their religion. Right. And uh, and so I have to. My brain go, does all this weird calculations and and checking and balancing to wait. So, you know, for instance, I there there was a couple I worked with. They weren't Jehovah Witness, but they were highly religious and were locked into a marriage that. They neither one of them wanted to be in. Oh yeah. So I and, I, and this was after you know thirty forty years of of unhappiness, mm. and after six months of therapy, I was hearing from both of them that they did not want to be together anymore. And so I started introducing the idea of maybe not being together anymore. And they were like, "Oh no, you know that's that's not an option." And and, and so you know we talked about that, and. Although this isn't the best example, because um, I'm a, another thing about couples therapy that you have to avoid is having a notion that you know whether or not a couple should be together. Or not. Oh, we should talk about it. Yeah. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast by going to Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com. We have a lot of new patrons of the podcast. For instance, patron Megan, patron Mark, Andrea, Adam, Claire, Rachel, Rebecca, Laura, Nelson, Jason, Brittany, Jen, Lauren, Kimber. These are some great names, by the way. Uh, people are also uploading pictures of themselves, which is great. It looks like Jason uh, has uploaded a picture of himself. He's got a nice-looking beard there. Uh, so... If you can, please become a patron, and when you do so, uh, you get access to all of our exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives on various different things, and you can also get uh, some swag in the mail, maybe. So let's continue talking about... So infidelity, the main thing that we work on when a couple comes to us having experience infidelity, a common story is, I was uh, sitting there uh, and... My the husband or the wife left the phone on the on the coffee table, and this text came through. And I looked at it, and I and I and it looked funny to me. And so I opened up the phone. I was just a little curious, probably not the best thing to do. And I start scrolling through, and I see this whole exchange between this other person. Now this could be just an email. A situation or a text situation, or it could be as big as evidence that they've been having sex for the last couple of years. So, or email, or I don't know. That's usually I, to me, it makes me wonder before email and phones and all that kind of stuff if infidelity was impossible to detect back in the old days because, because a hundred percent of the time today, infidelity is discovered in, in these ways. Private investigators are no longer in business. Yeah, because they don't need to be because your phone will betray you, you know. And so uh, so that's a common story. They come in and 
they've been talking about divorce. They've been talking about, they've been fighting a lot. They, they're obviously hurt and they don't know what to do. And so they'll come, uh, most people don't go to a therapist, but, um, but the ones who do, uh, then we begin what we call the recovery process. And I've done whole episodes on, on infidelity and the recovery process. So you can go listen to those, but the general guideline is that infidelity happens and it's, and what constitutes infidelity is also uh, something to think about. But, but what's commonly considered infidelity is actually way more common than we think. It challenges all of our notions of Cinderella and pure love and, and dedication and whatnot. And the fact is, is mo- Every, they when they do studies on this sorts of thing, like ninety plus percent of people at least have infidelity thoughts. Oh yeah, right. You fantasize about someone else. Or Absolutely, something. yeah. Or and then some other percentage will flirt with someone. Oh yeah. Uh, so and then a lower percentage will have actual like ongoing flirtation or something, and then some lower percentage of that will. Uh, they'll get drunk one night and make out with somebody or something. And so, and on and on and on. And it, now it's, it's hurtful behavior. It's uh, when you are involved in a committed relationship and you have understandings around what's infidelity and what isn't, it's hurtful behavior. It's bad. It's, it's not nice. It's in the category of, of, in my mind, it's in the category of stealing or, punching someone in the face because you're frustrated or, you know, it's in the, it's in the category of, of harm, intentional behavior that can, that you know will harm another, you know, harm another person. And it's, and it's, it's immoral. And what people should be doing is uh, thinking about what their, what their lives are about. And if they need to divorce before engaging in that, then that's, that's available to them. Right. So, so I don't want to be all kind of squishy therapist around this sort of thing. You know, it's the same as if a gang member came to me and said, I shot someone down the street. Now, infidelity is far from shooting someone. But my point is, is that there are behaviors that are, are just flat out wrong and uh, uncool and, uh, and, and should be categorized as such. If you are desperate and poor and you need food and you steal food from the Safeway, I don't consider that to be immoral. That's just like a little tax on society that you deserve. You know what I mean? So uh, it's a matter of, of context and all that kind of stuff. So some people might cheat in a situation where they're being abused and, and they're traumatized. They don't know any other way out. And so in those situations, I wouldn't consider it necessarily immoral. But it uh, it should all just be considered that. Um, so... Having said all that, uh, when and the reason why I say that is because for the person who cheated, a lot of times there's a lot of defensiveness that comes into that. You know, they'll they'll think of themselves as like the victim or something, or they'll think of it as like, well, it's really no big deal, you know, let it go or something. And it's like, no, you, when you punch someone in the face, you don't walk away and go like, well, you know, it was justified, or it's like, well kind of, but you still punch someone in the face, you know, uh, and that needs to be recognized in order for recovery to happen is what I'm saying. In order for recovery to happen, the, the cheated on spouse needs to 
have justice essentially. Now that doesn't mean that the person who cheated needs to grovel or pay a bunch of restitution or something, but the acknowledgement of the harm that it did to another person and the acknowledgement that the, that what you did as a cheater harmed the other person needs to be accepted. And now you don't need to be ashamed of yourself, but you need to acknowledge that that's what happened. Now, if you don't want to do any of that acknowledgement as the cheating spouse, then, uh, you will have a very difficult time recovering as a couple from the infidelity. So that's kind of step one. Now, how you do that therapeutically is a, is a very difficult thing. In my experience, uh, recovery from infidelity takes years. It, it's, a, it's a, I don't know, five to 20-year process. And uh, for some people, it could be shorter, depending on the transgression. But for many people, it's... it's, it's I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If you stay with your partner, it will emerge uh, in perpetuity. <laughs> the, it, I, I have people individually and, and couples that are talking about infidelity that happened 25 years prior. It, it's, it's so destructive. And the universal reaction from the cheater is, I had no idea we'd be talking about it this long. I had no idea that if I would have known... <laughs> that five years I would still be in, incurring the consequences, I would never have made out with that person that night, or I would never have uh, had that one-night stand with that person. It, that one-night stand, it, didn't even, it wasn't even good. <laughs> it, was, it was lame. It was, it was awkward, and, and I, don't, you know, I was half drunk. I don't, I don't even remember it. You know? And here we are five years later, and my partner is still hurt and, and still has intrusive thoughts about me being with that person. Do you think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of humans that we kind of walk around with? No, yes. and Well, one, yes, because our society doesn't talk about this enough. And two, because of our, our very good ability to go into denial. Ha! Yeah. Everyone has been hurt by someone, or sure. and everyone by a certain age has probably been uh, cheated on, and knows how that can feel. And yet, when we go down the slippery slope, which it usually is, it's usually not just like boom, you're having sex with someone. It's usually that's and that's why actually texts can facilitate that slippery slope because a little bit, you know, texting, you know, hey, I'm just texting a friend, just just texting a friend. How you doing? What you you know? What you up to? Whereas before, in the 60s or something, you'd have to, you know, call them on the phone or you'd have to go to their house or something. And so the slippery slope was um, not as facilitated as it is today. Because as, as it is today, anyone right now can pick up their phone and begin flirting with someone that they probably know might flirt back. You know, you have how many hundreds of friends on Facebook who and you can kind of tell on Facebook who's kind of um, open to that kind of stuff, you know, because they'll they'll send you messages and give you the impression, oh, is this person maybe this person's up for like a little flirtation or something? And so because of that, it it facilitates that slippery slope. Anyway, the point is is that as we go down that slippery slope, we go into denial and we we just say everything's going to be okay. I'm not going to get caught. And it'll just be this little flirtation. That's that's all it's going to be. Oh, it'll just be, you know, just be making out. Uh, it'll just be the tip. 
You know what I mean? It'll just be, <laughs> and in every step of the way, that's that's what people do, because people are also all not only really good at denial, but also very good, or they all have a they all want to be good people. Everyone wants to be a good person, so they don't want to hurt another person. They're not like, yeah, I want to hurt my spouse. So they have to trick themselves into, but they also have a need. There's something that, that they're trying to express, which we could talk about for days anyway. Anyway. Well, think about it from the other side, though. If you're the injured party and five years down the road, you find yourself feeling upset about the affair again. And you say to yourself, why aren't I not getting over this? Right. As if shoving it aside is somehow going to actually make it go away. So it sits inside you and festers and it festers and it's there and it doesn't go away. And you're like, I don't know, am I, am I allowed to talk about this anymore? I, I, am I supposed to be over this already? Right. If I don't understand the fundal nature, fundamental nature of attachment injury, I'm fucked. Right. And that's where couples therapists come in. So I will talk with couples and individuals, frankly, about what this all means. And that portrayal that you had five years. I have clients like this currently. Sure. Five years down line. So what I'll say is you're totally entitled to having a knee jerk attachment injury as the trauma of that past cheating that your spouse did on you emerges in your psyche. And the solution is not to shame. You don't have. If you had a way of erasing that feeling, yeah, right. you would have done it. Sure. And, and it and it's not and it's not going away. It must be innately human to have that reaction. Right. So the solution is not to stuff it and not to shame the self or to let it build up. But it, you know, talk about it. Yeah, life fucking sucks sometimes. Yeah, you know man. what I mean. And so and then relationally. So how do you express that and when? You know, maybe at below a certain threshold, you just sort of deal with it yourself or talk with a friend or do some art or, you know, I don't know. Find a way to soothe your way until it settles. Because maybe it will. Yeah. Go to the guy who had sex with your wife's Facebook page and like um, blast him on Facebook. I don't know. (laughs) Or something. But the point is, is, you know, there's a, but then, but, but above a threshold, actually that I would consider quite low, you express it to your spouse. You just be like, so I just want to let you know today, when you got that text and it just sort of triggered this thing in my head that reminded me of what happened five years ago. And I, 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 I guess I just need you to tell me that you're sorry for what you did and that you care and that you're not doing it. You're not again, doing it. What? You're not over it already. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Then you get that message back and then well, where you guys are off to the races. Well, and that's where the couple's therapist comes in and right. tells the cheating partner, look, this is what you're signing up for. Yep. When you crossed that line and you got discovered, you signed up for years of having to address that. Now, what, I, what I'll tell both people is, because usually, so the cheating person five years down the line when they hear this, there's an innate disappointment. It's like, oh my God, we're still dealing with this. You're so sensitive. Right. Um, but usually that's because the first knee-jerk reaction from the cheating partner is they feel hurt. hurt. They're just like, they they feel like they're being accused of yeah. something, you know, like, um, or the, or all of their efforts and all of their apologies have been not acknowledged or something. So they're protective. Yeah, when they're hurt and then they get protective. Right. right? And so, so what you have to do for both people is have a process of working through those moments that, that accounts for all that. So for instance, the, the person who was cheated on goes to the, you know, the cheater again, five years later and says, 
So I just want you to let you know when I got that text, it, you know, an hour ago, and I've been trying to kind of stuff it, but it's not working. I'm not blaming you right now. I, I know that you've apologized a billion times, and I, I apologize for making you apologize another time, but I kind of need you to apologize one another time, and I think it'll help me to heal. You know, I think I think that'll help. So you're taking responsibility for your own behavior. You're acknowledging that the other person has put a lot of effort into it, and then the cheating person takes a deep breath yep. and accepts the fact that this is reality yep. and loves and cares and, you know, tries to not allow themselves to feel too hurt by it. Cause it's just like, okay, well this person is trying and that's good. And so, okay, yes, I'm sorry. Maybe um, they per- could even take it a step further and recognize they have the honor of being somebody that's safe for this person. Maybe the only one that's going to be. Yeah. And their relationship is enhanced by their own willingness Right. Some people get better after infidelity. Some do. Yeah. They get stronger. It it illuminates a distance or a a sort of routine that they got into and right. they can actually become stronger afterwards. Right. The the amount of bonding that can actually occur from this process of recovering from infidelity can actually be quite great. Yeah. And so um so yeah, so that's that's the process. I've said this before on the podcast the single, the biggest barrier to this whole process is the cheating person's inability to accept what they are signing up for. Uh, I, I will get, um, you know, I'll get some progress with that, and then like six months later, I'll get the same the same statements from the cheating person. They'll just be like, "When are we going to be over with this? How many times do I have to apologize? You yeah. know, what what is going on here? You know, like how come you can't let go of it?" Right. And I'll return, you know, right to the beginning. I'll say, remember how we? I've been telling you that from my professional experience, I'm here to tell you, like, this is going to take a long time. And he's not sensitive or she's not sensitive. It's, it's normal. And for some people, they can recover faster just for whatever reason. And for some, and, but for most people, it's an ongoing emerging trauma that will nag and the best way for him or her to cope with that is to communicate it to you so that you can so it gives you an opportunity to repair it in the yeah, moment right rather than them sitting and festering and slowly getting angry and then them punishing you passive aggressively they are I'm recommending that they actually speak up about it and yeah. that gives you an opportunity to actually further the healing but that's not going to help it, you're not going to do any good if you're if you're not going to accept the fact that his or her feelings are actually normal or understandable, right. and you don't have to be threatened by it. Is the whole thing? It's just part of the thing. Yeah, and da da da. But but again, I'll do that whole thing, and then <laughs> the next week, I don't understand. Like, when is this going to be over? You know? Okay, um, because again, it's it the the mechanisms in our psyches that protect us from the notions that we have done something bad are quite extensive. Yeah. And depending on how mature you are and, and your own traumas growing up and how you were chastised or whatever, it makes it really hard for people to, uh, to really accept because the right behind, so, so in, they stay in a zone of denial. Like there's nothing wrong with me. I didn't do anything wrong or I barely did something wrong. And the other person's overreacting. You get them to to a little bit more uh, mature point of view of 
actually your partner is reacting normally yeah. to a situation that you caused. Right. No one else caused this. Nobody else did anything. Right. You're, you can't blame this on Trump. You can't blame it on even the person you cheated on. You did this and you did you. And it wasn't even like you just stumbled. This was something you did a campaign about for an extended period of time. As, as soon as they accept that reality, they very quickly plummet into a, into a shame spiral and become depressed. And they're just, and so like, because they were, mistreated as children and, and shamed for so many things they just plummet and then uh and and then now they're shame now they're ashamed now they're crying now they're falling apart now they're they're feeling like they're worthless and literally worthless and and they don't even deserve to have a marriage and so so that, that that's the choice that the cheating partner has has to have yeah complete denial and sort of self-centeredness and at least kind of functioning and happy or totally ashamed and feeling worthless and uh, legitimately upset at oneself for, for making a bad decision. Have you ever seen anybody be proactive? Like a, a, a involved partner just knows that this is the case for the injured partner and goes to them periodically and says, how are you doing? Rarely. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. It would be. Wouldn't it be great if all of us weren't ashamed so easily, I guess, is, is yeah. the thing. And, and had, wouldn't it be great if none of us were chastised as children and made to feel worthless because of something we did wrong? You know, uh, you spilt milk. There's something wrong with you. How, what a klutz you are. You, you could even see it going the other way, though, where the injured partner says to the involved person, how are you doing? Yeah. And that is something that I'll facilitate as well. Yeah. It's, 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 the bottom line is once, now some couples say, I'm done. He or she cheated on me. Yeah. I'm done, which right. is fine. Everyone can make their choices. But if they commit to recovery, right. then it is a matter of mutual empathy and of self empathy. And if we can get, if we can somehow put aside the shame and put aside the denial, there, is a very quick road to everyone getting better, but it's a tall order to put aside one's shame and denial. Yeah. <laughs> and and one's childhood mistreatment around being a bad boy or a bad girl. Right. Um and and so um and and this doesn't even touch the personality disorder people who actually believe completely vindicated or justified in doing bad things to other people and there are people like that where, or think they deserve to have been pooped on right right exactly the other side of things right so uh so it gets it gets very complicated but um now having said all that <laughs> um i have had success with this yeah. if, you know most if not all my current clients have successfully or i should say are successfully moving down the road of recovery right and it's bumpy my friend yeah you know, it is it is uh it is um full of potholes and but you know doable anyway so that's infidelity other uh, uh so the main two issues people come in mainly conflict but also a smaller subset of infidelity also, people come in. Uh, there's a big polyamorous community in Seattle. People come to me to 
polyamorous people in general are they they take to therapy very very well because they tend to be very good communicators to begin with yeah and because they need to work out a lot of things and agreements and uh, account for each other's feelings therapy is actually a really great place for them to be more concentrated in that way and so so there's that another issue is parenting people will come to me to talk about parenting People will also come for what they will call premarital counseling. Yeah, what is that? Well, back in the old days, I, I have the impression that in order to get married in some churches, they, oh. re- they required it. Yeah, right? Catholics. Yeah, yeah, and and so there's and there's a whole tradition of pastoral couples counselors. Right. But what people mean today is we one are we good enough as a couple to get married? Oh, <laughs> you know, man. or are we are you know like Let's go to a couple because we're fighting now, right. and we're and so are we sure we want to get married? Right. So that's one th- goal. But another goal is our our relationship is pretty good, and but we just want to really make sure that we're strong to when we move forward and face the kinds of things you face as you progress in a marriage and that kind of thing. Those are my favorite couple. <laughs> my favorite couples because. They are so beautiful in counseling. You know, they sit down and they're holding hands and they might have some conflicts, but they don't resent. They empathize. They, I mean, the sort of, imagine the sort of couple that is like, you know, there's nothing wrong with our relationship. In fact, we're doing pretty good. We're getting married in a year. Let's go to couples counseling just to make sure we're doing okay. Like, you know, those are the kinds of people that, are uh, it's just it's a beautiful thing to watch when people are in love and caring and giving to each other and um, and even in the midst of conflict you know but they'll apologize really quickly and um, so you know there's those kinds of people too also trauma some people will come to talk about trauma and as a marriage and family therapist I will treat some people's trauma in couples counseling. It's not the traditional way that people do it, but if that's how people want to do it, I'll just lay it out to people. It's like, well, there's a couple of ways we could do this. We can actually, I could split this up in an individual. I could refer you to someone else, or we could just do it while both of you are here. There's nothing wrong with a spouse witnessing another person's trauma recovery. Oh, you could make a good case that there's something for it. Right. Do you do uh, just prolonged exposure? You do something else? Uh, yeah, I imaginal exposure yeah, yeah. Uh, in which people, I mean, the, my whole uh, model is similar to the general model oh, okay. of okay. emotional regulation and awareness and and distress management before going into imaginal exposure and sure. blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, so some so very rarely uh, there will be times when we'll actually say, oh, let's, let's start doing, because frankly, I would say... 80% of my couples, at least one member, has significant childhood trauma that very much relates to their presenting problems of conflict or distance or whatever it is. And until they recover from that trauma, it's going to be really hard for them to function as a couple. And uh, so I'm either referring them or, or suggesting that we enter into that. 
Um, incidentally, infidelity can also be traumatic for people. In fact, it usually is. The yeah. discovery of the infidelity is actually a traumatic event for people that can create PTSD. Uh, also, structural things. People come to me, they'll, they'll have boundaries with extended family that they'll need to oh, talk right. about. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, I'll, and then I'll, I'll also divorce. People will come and talk about divorce, how to divorce well, or how to parent the kids after divorce, how to avoid a massive legal battle, uh, this sort of thing. It, did I miss any presenting problems that you've seen? No. Oh. Okay. So let's take a break. and we get back, let's talk about countertransference. What do you say? Sure. So, Bob, we're back from the break. What is it like, counter-transference-wise, to work with couples in your experience? Oh, um, it's different from one-on-one counseling. Um, uh, No, actually, I take it back. It's not any different at all. It's harder for me, having less experience. I find myself feeling confused, anxious, overwhelmed, preoccupied with how I'm doing, am I doing any good, and... um, Much more so than individual therapy. Yeah. 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 Right. Am I doing any good? What am, uh, are these people appreciating my work? What am I supposed to do here? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Countertransference is the most intense in couples counseling. Uh, I, I would imagine that in other, there's other contexts like if you're treating, uh, domestic violence or something like that, there's a fair amount of countertransference as well. Mm-hmm. But, and your in your fairly typical practice, couples are have the highest potential for the most intense countertransference by far. With my individual clients, my countertransference is on a scale from like intensity from one to ten. It's probably like a one point one. <laughs> I mean, the the amount of reactivity that I'm prone to have with an individual is extremely low. With my couples. Now, the more experience I get, the less intense it gets, but um, but it, it can be easily it can be like a five or six on a on a given practice day. In the old days, you know, meaning twelve years into my early career, <laughs> it would be a ten. I mean, I, I would I would have some extremely difficult couples counseling sessions for myself. Um, the the reasons for this is that. Uh, couples naturally are triangulating you. They they want uh, they either overtly want you to side with them against their partner, or you're just being triangulated naturally. It's a part of systems thinking. It's a part of systems processes that when you are in the midst of a system that that exists and has all these routines, that you will you will get uh, elected to play a role in that, and you will also feel compelled to play a role in that. And so in that election and voluntary movement into the system process, you lose yourself Mm. and you lose your professionality and you lose your boundary that you might normally have. That's not a bad thing, depending on your approach. In my opinion, it's actually what needs to happen in order for good therapy to occur. And in that process, you start to get involved in some mutual protective identification issues. Um, and, And when you... Um, also, uh, another kind of passive thing is that they the as people talk about conflicts, they naturally start to say to themselves, "I'm right, the other person's wrong," 
And what they would love to have you say as a therapist is, you know what? You're right. You're, you're the right one. And the other person is the wrong one. And depending on how mature the person is, when we don't uh, fall into that uh, pattern and we don't validate someone's notion that they're right and the other person's wrong, they, they will, they'll punish you for it. You know, now they might not, it might not, it might not be overt. You know, they might not say you're a terrible therapist, although, you know, I've been told that before, but it'll be subtle. It'll be like, you know what? I'm a little miffed at my therapist right now for not going along with that. And this is all normal. It's not something strange, right? If I was in couples counseling, I'd be doing the same thing. And there's, there's a subtle punishment that a client will do to you. Now, if you're an individual therapy, you can agree with everything the person is saying, or at the very least, not give off the, because, because here's the other thing is, is when you're in couples counseling, uh, so wife is complaining about husband, okay, and therapist is validating the feelings, and the and the wife is like, oh, okay, validating, me. and the husband starts to complain about the wife, right, right there, and then therapist proceeds to validate the husband's feelings. Well, now wife is like, well, this is kind of bullshit. You're validating his feelings. This is bullshit, you know, and and vice versa. And so, depending on the level of intensity that they're feeling. Uh, they're going to start to punish you and they're going to start to distance from you or they're going to start to criticize you or they're going to start not listening to you as much or they're going to give the impression that they just don't appreciate your vibe. And all that is normal. It's just normal emotional reactivity that anyone feels in a situation. And so that's why another reason why countertransference can be, can be really intense. Um, the other thing is, is all of us, therapists included, have unresolved conflicts with our own spouses. <laughs> you know, as Gottman says, uh, the majority of conflicts go unresolved. Mm. It's just in their observation of actual couples, right. even couples that are highly successful and manage to stay happy, happily married for decades, will report that the majority of the conflicts that they have with their spouse just never go resolved. They just stay unresolved. You know, like, um, I don't like it when my spouse um, is occasionally cold and distant or something like that. It just seems like he gets, he just gets in this mode where I just feel like I can't reach him. Well, you can work on that in therapy and he can admit, yeah, I'm sorry I do that. And, you can try to minimize it as best you can, but though that problem is going to perpetuate. And so, so all of us as therapists, as couples therapists, have all of these unresolved things, and we have resentments and hurt and feelings, okay? Traumas, experiences, things that are rattling around in our soul. And we sit down and we hear a couple complain about unresolved conflicts. Well, what are we going to do in our bodies? Well, we're going to go there <laughs> and, and we're going to get wrapped up in that, you know, not only countertransference wise, just like trying to uh, sort of impose our own will on, mm. you know, like uh, trying to attack a partner who is acting like partners who have hurt us. You know what I mean? Inciting with the partner who seems to be hurt in a similar way that we've been hurt. Not only that, but just internally, we're just like reminded, right? And and it and it triggers all these things in us. And so, 
and it's happening right there in front of us. It's not an abstraction that an individual client is talking about that's happening far, far away. It's we're witnessing it and it's our job to fix it. And so we're all wrapped up in it and it triggers all this thing and we just lose our you know, ability to remain uh, calm in that situation. It hasn't happened to me in a couple, three days. <laughs> um, so what's it like when you... Tell me more about what it's like when, it, when you feel that kind of transference feeling. I feel incredibly anxious. I feel tongue-tied. Sometimes I feel angry. Yeah. Uh, frustrated with one person for being stubborn. Um, and I sometimes I'm just like trying to survive the session. Sometimes I'm watching the clock. Sometimes yeah. I'm... Um, uh, how do you put it? Wondering what the hell I'm going to do. What am I going to say? Right. In my and, better moments, I take a deep breath. Good. Yeah. And just remind yourself that remaining differentiated is one of the best things we can do as a therapist. In that situation is just remain calm, contain. That's what they need. They need someone to remain calm and not flip out, essentially, and not take things personally and just and just be like, okay, you know, I'm in it and I'm I'm with you and I'm also not being destroyed by it. You know, like with individuals, they come in, they'll complain about their spouse. There's not really a goal in mind. You, you're usually just like, well, they're venting. I'll might maybe throw out a couple ideas or let's explore maybe some different things. But there's not a task at hand, really. You, you can't do anything about it because the other person's not in the room, right? When you have a couple that sits down, it's sort of implied that it's your job to fix it yeah. by the end of the session. Sometimes it's not just implied. Sometimes it's verbalized. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're paying you a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, please fix this problem that right. we're experiencing right now. Right. And it, it's a whole... There, Couples tend to come to therapy wanting results really fast. Mm. They want... Not in this unreasonable way, but there's a task at hand. They want to leave the session better off in a very real way in between them. And... But sometimes uh, we might be bad therapists in that session, or the client is is just struggling so severely that there, it's really hard to see any kind of noticeable movement, you know. And so um, it ups the intensity of it. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of expectation on the therapist in a situation like that. That if you don't manage, then it'll get under your skin, and you'll feel like a worthless therapist. You know. A couple comes in and they're fighting at the beginning of the session and they leave the session. I've had couples screaming at each other as they're leaving the office. Yeah. You know, I can hear them outside of my office right. you know, continuing to scream at each other. And it's hard not to take that personally and say, like, I didn't do a good job. You know, that I failed yeah. in, that, in this moment. Now, later on, when you separate yourself from it, you're like, oh, well, I tried my best and it didn't work. <laughs> for whatever reason, and therapy takes a long time, and and if couples therapy was that easy, then blah blah blah. Yeah, but in the moment, you're wrapped up in the system, and you're they're self shaming, and you're self shaming, and you know da da da. Anyway, yeah, it's so immediate. Somebody comes in, individual client, they're talking about their spouse, the difficulty they have is not immediate, but they come in with their spouse, you're it's in your face, right? Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about common sessions. I've talked a little bit about it already, but um, just a summer. Well, what's, what's, your, what's a common session look like to you? Like if you just sort of average out all your couple's therapy sessions, what, what, is, it, what is it? You know, they sit down. What's the first thing they start talking about usually? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, they talk about 
I usually start with how's it going being married people or being a really in a relationship together. Yeah. Or sometimes they'll say there's something specific that they want to talk about. Um, so it could go a lot of ways. But what I what I think about is I should restate what I want to think about and what I do think about uh, a good amount of time, but not all the time is what is happening right now. What is what is the process that we're in right now as they're walking in the door and sitting down. So that worked out really well recently when I had a couple come in and they had a fight in my waiting room. <laughs> and so we just slowed it down. And, and the thing was, what's going on beneath anger? And, you know, what are people telling themselves about themselves or their partner that's driving them to hold the position they're holding and feel the way they feel? And then can they just slow it down and communicate that? I hate that word. Can they just tell the other person, this is what's going on for me? And can then the other person receive it? Sometimes they can. I thought, I'm doing beautifully. This woman is, she never talks to her husband. She's actually turning and she's talking to him. She's saying something and he wasn't taking it in. I was like, God. <laughs> anyway, so, but then I just worked with that. It was like, well, okay, he's not taking it in. Let's not pussyfoot around it. Let's just own that. He's not taking it in. And so he did. He said, I can't take it in right now because, and he had a whole story going on for him. Anyways, my best moments, I'm focused on what is the process, not what is the content. Right. But I get stuck in content too much. What's that look like exactly? Usually that looks like me feeling really frustrated, anxious, and taking sides. Yeah. So taking sides like on what kind of what kind of stuff? Who's right, who's wrong. Yeah. Somebody should change. He's, he, he says this thing about her. It's actually true. And I turned to her and I said, well, you know, he does have a point here. Yeah. It's like, and, and I believe, oh, I'm doing something. This could be really useful if she could see that he has a point here that could. No. Yeah. Right. And that's a novice therapist thing and a um, thing we get into when we're engaged in countertransference. It's a, it's a common I, – I, I say novice because I'm teaching applied family therapy right now and this quarter. And universally, every single student, I am trying to get them away from what we're just talking about right now. And, yeah. and of course, it takes time and they'll never really fully get away from it. But – this notion that therapy is supposed to be basically a referee, referee. or something, yeah, yeah, where you're, where a judge, you're, yeah. you're, you're like, uh, make a case, okay, both go, make yeah. your case, uh, you're right, you're wrong, okay, next, next, <laughs> next issue, you know, and that's the way it's on Doctor Phil, that's the way it is, in right. the, that's the way it's in the culture, that's the way politics works, that's the way courts work. It's not the way real life helpfulness works, you know, as you're saying, it's more about process, meaning that. It it has nothing to do with the topic at hand. Yeah. Uh, for instance, so a common session, they sit down. Uh, often they'll tell me about a conflict that they've had recently. You know, I'll say, you know, what do you what do you guys want to talk about today? Is is usually the way I open it up, and they'll they'll usually go to, well, we had a fight a couple weeks ago, and I think we need to work because we didn't really resolve. It sort of ended badly, and I think we need to resolve it. And then, so I'll say, okay, what happened? And they both tell me their stories are usually quite different from each other. And then I just go into uh, attachment-oriented therapy. You're alluding to it as well. Yeah, It's sometimes called EFT, but honestly, I was doing this before I even knew what EFT was. That's fabulous. Well, not because I'm a genius, but EFT emerged from a form of... I did did a whole episode on EFT, uh, patron-only episode, by the way. And I think, and um, in this whole, whole episode, I kind of lay that all out. But when I discovered EFT, I was like, well, this is never going to catch on because we're already doing this. I, I remember thinking that. I was like, they're just labeling something that 
we're all kind of doing. Right. Uh, and But today, when I do it, they're like, oh, that's like EFT. And so to this day, I have a resentment against that. It's like, don't, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, I don't know what it's called, attachment-oriented or humanistic or satirian or something. It, I, I got it from somewhere. Yeah. And, or clients basically taught it to me based on my experience with them or something. And so uh, I don't, so we'll call it EFT, but, <laughs> but, uh, and EFT has helped a little bit. I mean, some of the terminology has actually helped solidify the, the ideas of my mind. But should anyway. you say what EFT is or, uh, so another listen time. to that whole other episode, but essentially gotcha. the, the, the gist of it is we've already kind of alluded to it, which right. is people come in, they're, they're upset at each other. They had a conflict and then I, you know, get some details and then I say, okay, usually what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find that beginning step to the conflict because once people get into a cycle of conflict they say a lot of really horrible things to each other and they don't listen and they have legitimate reasons to be hurt and they and they're sort of beyond a threshold of like there's really no reason to even go to that zone because you're both wrong in those situations so but where did it begin because that's really because once you're in a huge conflict how do you get out of it well you probably just have to both shut up you know what i mean (laughs) but like but what you can do is in the future is how do you how do you avoid even getting there right you know and so i try to get to the very beginning and you and sometimes it takes a while to figure that out sometimes the beginning of the conflict happened a month ago yeah where someone said something and it sort of rubbed the other person wrong and they held that resentment and then that built and then they did that other thing and then da, 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 da. it's usually in an half hour, but it can go back uh, like 24 hours or something. So we get to that point like, well, we were at dinner and the kids were there and I said to Jenny that she had to finish eating and my wife uh, said that it was okay that she, that she leave the table. And Although it wasn't that big of a deal, it's just another example of her undermining me, and it, and, it, and it really pissed me off. And so then the next day, when she got home from work, and I got home from work, and she said she wanted to hang out, I, I was, I don't know, I just wasn't feeling it. And so I just told her, look, I'm not feeling it. I, I'm going to go out with the boys. And and then she's like, yeah, you. that's not what you said. What you said was, I can't handle you right now. I'm leaving. And, and and then he's like, oh, well, I don't really remember that. And he's like, well, that's what you said, mm-hmm. okay? You know, I don't appreciate you just coming home from work and just saying, you can't handle me? Like, what's wrong with, like, what? And you're going to go drink with your friends, and now I'm home stuck with the kids all night? That's bullshit. And he's just like, what? I can't hang out with my friend? You know, this is, I, I'm describing a very common <laughs> fictional conflict. Now, so I said, okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Okay, so when you were at the table... Everything was fine, right? Before, yeah, everything was fine. Okay, so, and then you say to Jenny, she has to finish dinner. Okay. Now, wife, when you saw this, what, what was going on in your mind? And she's like, um, well, I don't know. It just sort of bothered me that he was making her finish. She, you know, she's four, and, and it's not a big deal. Now, this is where it's tempting to get involved in the content, where yeah. it's like as a therapist, and this is what I'm dealing with with my students, is they'll start to get into like, well, yeah, she is four. She should be allowed because there's this general tendency for therapists to be like, let kids do whatever the fuck they want. You know what I mean? And it's just like, uh, so anyway, it's a whole other topic. But, but uh, so uh, the therapist would be like, you know what? I think that's reasonable. Hey, husband, maybe you know, maybe you should lighten up on the kid. That that's a very common stupidity therapist thing that they will do. But it, uh, but you know, I guess understandable. But anyway, the point is, is I don't get involved in that, and I say, okay, so. 
Um, I mean, unless I hear something completely wackadoo, you know, which isn't typical. Um, I don't, I don't care about what they're actually fighting about. So, so okay. So, wife. So, in that moment, you you had some feelings. What were, what were those feelings? Tell me what those feelings were. Well, I don't know. I was I was I was angry. I was frustrated. I mean, I'm annoyed. Uh, what were you annoyed with? Well, um, you know, we've had a lot of talks about this and about how uh, how he is he's he's too harsh. And of course, this relates to her own father being harsh and all this other stuff, you know, and all like that. But anyway, so it's like, okay, so in that moment, you were feeling frustrated, but uh, what else were you feeling? Well, um, and again, this could take literally months of time before they're able to identify. I think I was also feeling hurt and threatened. Uh, In that moment, when my husband said, you need to finish your food, Jenny, I felt threatened because I was worried about Jenny and I was also worried about what this meant in terms of our overall approach to Jenny in that husband is, is very strict with her and I don't like it when he's super strict with her. I want, I want him to lighten up and I, and I feel threatened when he imposes these boundaries on Jenny because I'm worried it's going to blossom into an overall like Nazi internment camp in our house. And so, uh, so that's what I felt. I felt scared and I felt threatened and I felt worried for the future. I felt, I felt hurt for Jenny because I know she did her best. And, and so that's what I felt. Oh. And so husband's like, I had no idea that's how you felt. <laughs> I had no idea you felt. All I got was you undermining me, which made me feel, okay, then we go to him. Okay, how did that feel for you? Well, it felt, uh, I was pissed off. I was annoyed. Okay, what else did you feel? Again, months, months of therapy of emotional awareness and exploration. I also felt hurt when she, I was trying to do my best and because I'm trying to, establish a certain routine with the kids. And I think it's reasonable to expect kids to finish their food. Otherwise, you know, utter chaos around mealtime. And with, you know, because she didn't ask me and she just sort of just undermined me right in the moment, it hurt my feelings. And it, and it was very demoralizing because it's like, so at any moment, if I do anything, she's just going to completely erase it and be, and she'll be the good guy. And now I'm the bad guy. And it, it just felt, it hurt my feelings because I felt like she wasn't, she didn't care about me. It felt hurtful. Then that's usually what it comes down to. Usually it's nothing to do with parenting. It's does my wife love me? Is my wife dedicated? Does my wife have empathy for my feelings? That's what it comes down to. And even, even the wife, you know, we could get actually to the fundamental level of when he drew that boundary with Jenny, I felt like my husband was not loving me because we had already talked about being a little lighter on Jenny that's usually that selfish part of ourselves. It's like, don't you love me enough to listen to all the things I've said prior to this? Don't you love me enough to be able to predict that that would have hurt my feelings? Now that could be years of therapy before people can admit that, but at least they can admit some of the other stuff. So then once they become aware of those feelings, again, this can take months and it usually does. Then what I say is, okay, when this happens in the future, as soon as possible, communicate that feeling to your partner. So, you know, they have another interaction. Uh, Jenny, I need you to finish your food. Wife whispers to husband. So I just want to tell you when you did that, and so this is maybe later on, right? So when you did that uh, thing to Jenny and you told her she had to finish, I just want to tell you, 
it hurts my feelings because we've we've already talked about being lighter on Jenny and and I I it it hurts my feelings when you don't acknowledge the fact that we already had a talk about this and and I just want you to know that you know that that's just how it felt in the moment and honestly I had an impulse to like undermine you <laughs> but I restrained myself and then husband's like oh my god I didn't know I don't want to hurt your feelings. I didn't, I didn't know that was hurting your feelings. Uh, let's try to work something out. So that's a, that's a situation where you're being real, you're owning your feelings, you're communicating them, and you're allowing the other person to engage in empathy for you. If you just undermine the person and then proceed to get angry at each other, all you're doing is creating defensiveness. Whereas if you, if you communicate, you're hurt. People naturally want to help, you know, if someone trips and falls on the pavement outside, aside from psychopaths, the universal internal response is you want to go over there and help them. You know, they fall down, they drop their books. There's this innate human need to help, to be altruistic. And so when you alert your partner to your pain, there's an innate process internally for people that they want to, that they want to alleviate it. And they don't want to hurt the other person. And so, so that's what I try to get people to do is know that, that process of emotion, know those initial knee-jerk reactions, usually, usually hurt or anxiety-related. Communicate that, allow the other person to empathize, and then circumvent the anger overt anger expression, which leads to further hurt and blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense? Makes complete sense. Yeah. Is this what you do too? I wouldn't articulate it that way, but yes. But that's essentially what you do. Oh yeah. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. Um, do you find that underneath anger is usually hurt and fear and... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The only reason I wouldn't articulate it that way is because I'm not that articulate. (laughs) (laughs) I think you are. You just... Not uh, with this. You're just less um, less blabby than I am. The, the other thing is is that it's all related to attachment is, yeah. is the thing, is that, uh, that when our attachment needs are very real, normal, adult attachment needs are threatened or in question, then we feel hurt and rejected and uh, very dysregulated. And then we... Because our society says anger is okay and vulnerability is not, then we sort of trick ourselves into believing we're angry and then we express anger. When in reality, we're not actually angry. (laughs) We're actually just hurt and and threatened and scared. And when people are able to own those feelings and express them, things go much better for people. There's nothing wrong with, you know, the thing that I try to communicate to couples is, on a normal day, if things are going well, you're going to threaten each other's attachment needs probably like a hundred times. <laughs> and, and some of those will rise to the level where you should communicate them. And the more you do that, the less likely you're going to actually threaten each other's attachment needs in the future. But, that, but, but you're going to threaten each other's attachment needs. You know, you look at each other funny. Uh, you, you aren't quite listening to the other person. You uh, just little things, you know, like you're a little late from work. That can be an attachment threat. You know, it's just like, doesn't she love me enough to race home to be with me? <laughs> because shouldn't she want to be with me? Again, it, it's, it might sound like being sensitive, but honestly, everyone's like this. Everyone has a constant need for reassurance that, 
the people that they are investing love into love them back and are dedicated and thinking of them and loyal and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's not typical for people to actually exhibit the kinds of behaviors that actually reassure each other enough. And so there's going to be times when you're going to feel a little threatened and, and then you just have to communicate that anyway. So, so that's, so that's that. Uh, so let's wrap this up. Uh, Another thing that I like to talk about are common stages to, to couples therapy. Uh, almost all the time, what I find is that the initial, there's three phases to couples therapy. They, for the first stage they come in, uh, well, maybe four stages. <laughs> but So the first stage I could break up into two mini stages. One is, is like an initial honeymoon period where things go well for like a couple weeks. But then quickly they go back to the same massive conflict. In fact, it can be, it can be worse sometimes. So the first phase, lots of conflict. They're coming to therapy. And every time they sit down on my couch, there's a lot of conflict they're talking about. And then the second phase of couples therapy is very little conflict. So they've gotten to the point where they know how to avoid conflict. They know how to not get into fights. They know how to not start the 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 repetitive, you know, destructive pattern. The second phase is no, uh, no conflict or very little conflict, but also no intimacy. There's, there's no, there, they won't talk, they won't say, yeah, we're having a ton of wonderful, you know, intimate moments where we really feel like we love each other. You know, there's not a lot of that, but, but they're very, but they're rejoicing to the fact that they don't have a lot of conflict. The third phase is when they're actually like increasing intimacy and closeness and typically that that third phase can it'll it take a it takes a long time to get there one because of everyone's relational traumas that they uh, you know have had their entire life but also because by the time people come to therapy they've had like 20 years of problems and the in some ways for some couples they haven't been in love for a long time and so in some ways they have to fall back in love with each other again because the conflict was so bad that it snuffed out a lot of their goodwill towards each other. So do you see those three stages? Yeah. 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 Um, and the last thing is about success for the first, I remember for the first 10 or 15 years of my practice, I noticed that a majority of my couples didn't get better. <laughs> I don't know exactly why. Uh, I, I had this rough estimate in my head of just like, Maybe a third get a little better, but a third actually get worse, and another third get the same or kind of get a little worse slightly over time. Um, what's your success rate? I wouldn't even know how to measure it. Yeah. Well, for me now, I and I because I remember saying that to myself. I was like, you know what? As a person who specializes in couples, I don't have a very good success rate. I remember saying that to myself. But uh, but now, for whatever reason, I have. I did a mental kind of calculation on all the couples that I've seen over the last five years. And I, I would say I have a hundred percent success rate. Nice. Um, now why is that? <laughs> well, my suspicion is that I'm getting referred a set of clients that are actually, that have the potential of working well with my approach or something. Cause when I think back to the couples I had 10 years ago, they, were what we would call lower functioning or something, or just, you know, uh, more, more relational traumas in their childhood, more personality issues, that kind of stuff. That's a guess. 
Another possibility is that I'm just better as a therapist now because there, there are things that I like I, I had a couple 10 years ago and one of the partners had PTSD and had all now that I look back on it, I'm like, oh, he had PTSD. He was even a war veteran. <laughs> so it's but I didn't identify him or or I had a very limited understanding of trauma and PTSD and what it would look like in a male in as an adult trying to not act like he's been traumatized. When I look back on that, I, so, so in some ways I think my understanding of trauma and my understanding of personality now is so much more broad that I think that actually really helps in my approach to couples now. And so I think I'm just better as a therapist is, is probably the answer, which is weird because 10 years ago, I thought of myself as a pretty good couples therapist. Right. <laughs> and so, and you would think after being a couples therapist for 10 years, you'd think one would be good at it. But I think it takes a long time before you have, um, well, let's just put it this way. It's such a difficult skill that after 20 years, I'm still getting better. <laughs> which means that in 10 years ago, I was not as good as I am today. Who knows what you'll say in 10 years. And in 10 years from now, I'll say, my God, what was I thinking back then? <laughs> All right. What's the final word on couples therapy here, Bob? Get training. Yeah. It's really hard to learn. Where should people go for training? Oh, well, I, I do EFT. Yeah. So I found an EFT supervisor. I've done the International Center for Excellent and Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy as a website, and they'll present a lot of trainings, and that's the... The best way I know how to do it. Didn't you also do Gottman trainings? Yeah, and I love Gottman, but I don't think Gottman has much to say that actually helps couples get their wheels out of the mud. Okay. So I don't use Gottman in clinical work. As a clinical. Yeah. In terms of like the technique of Yeah. Him. But Gottman's books and and perspective is, is very helpful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 Seven Principles Making Marriage Work. Very good book. Yeah. Uh Yeah. John Gottman, local hero here in Seattle, University of Washington, uh, has a house on um, Orcas Island. Yeah. Sometimes uh, I'll see him walking around. Uh, and and he, he has a lot of things to say about a lot of things. He has a lot of th great things to say about couples, a lot of great things to say about parenting. Parenting, yeah. And uh, so if you ever get a chance to see John Gottman, do that. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. Uh, patron Maya, I hope that answers your questions. Let me know if it didn't. That does it for that episode. Thanks for joining me, Bob. And, Thank you. Uh, take care of yourself out there because... You deserve it. Hey, deserving listeners. Today's op episode... Today's episode? Today's episode is brought to you by Talkspace, which is an online counseling outfit that I fully endorse. I've looked into their practices and really wanted to make sure that I was promoting something that I can get behind. And I can definitely get behind this online counseling service. They make sure that their therapists are fully licensed. They train them in online counseling. The prices is, is pretty affordable and reasonable. If you use the promo code Kirk, you actually get a discount. Also, uh, when you use the promo code Kirk, it signals to Talkspace that this advertisement works, which means that they'll want to sponsor more episodes, which means that everyone wins. So if you're, if you're interested in online counseling or if you're just even just looking for someone to chat with every day, because this is on uh, Talkspace, you, you get contact with your therapist every day, which is pretty cool, right? So go to Talkspace, use the promo code Kirk and get your discount. And 
start your online counseling experience today. <laughs> Do it if you're if you're interested. I think I think it's pretty cool. If I mean if you're on the fence, again, just just give it a try and see if it's for you. Maybe it's not for you, but if it is for you, I, I think it's a it's a pretty cool service. Pretty convenient. You can do it from anywhere, right? And again, you have, you have contact with your therapist every day. Pretty cool. All right, end of commercial. 